Good to see you, girl. Thank you, Chris, Wendy. What a great mission to be involved in. Those guys' work is tireless. They work quite a bit on this. I've heard nothing but good things coming out of connecting with international students that come into our town. I hear lots of good things that come out of it. So hopefully they'll have more than one turkey available. So I'm Tim Butler. I'm one of the elders here. I want to uh, carry on a theme that Ben started a couple weeks ago when he talked about glory promised. It was the way that Jesus was presented or foretold or aimed toward, if you will, in the Old Testament. And he spoke to us two weeks ago of three ways that Jesus is referred to in the Old Testament. These are his words, not mine, because as soon as I say that, he spoke of them being as a theophany. I'm not sure I know what that word is, but he taught me what that word is. It means angel of the Lord, theophany. And it's also a typology, which means it refers a precursor to Jesus. And then a prophecy, which is foretelling of his coming. And then next month, we're going to talk about glory revealed, obviously, with the birth of Jesus, and we all know what that is. And for today, though, I want to look at a typology or a type of Jesus in the life of Joseph, who is one of the characters in the Old Testament. And in full disclosure, I'll be giving some high notes for the life of Joseph. And so, depending on where you are in your faith journey, you may or may not be familiar with this Old Testament character. And so if you aren't, listen up today and then go back and start reading with like Genesis 37 and then maybe re-listen to this. It might make more sense. So let's pray before we start. God, today is your day. It's a day that we stop. We worship you. God, we thank you for the salvation that we have in you. We thank you for the life that we have in you. We thank you for the gift that we have in you. And God, today, as we look at the Old Testament, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see how your coming has been foretold since the beginning of time. God, we love you, and thank you for being patient with us. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to lead off with a verse from Genesis and a verse from Revelation. We're going to cap the whole Bible, and then I'm going to read every verse in between. No, we're not. All right, Genesis 45, 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And they came closer. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And these words come near to me, implying what an intimacy or being closely connected, I believe are the exact same words as Jesus is saying to us today. And that's based in part on the two verses in Revelation, where the Lord says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and him and he with me. See, I believe that some of the rebuking and disciplining we feel today in various areas and various levels are proofs of his love. That love which always wants us to come near to him. Joseph as we'll see in a few minutes, spoke roughly to his brothers before he invited them to come near to him. Just as when we discipline our kids, we do so for the purpose of having them come closer to us, to our values, to our principles, to our morals. A wise parent will discipline their children with the ultimate goal of strengthening 
that relationship, not driving him away. So when the Lord allows or even causes our rebuking and chastening, and as we take our circumstances as from him. It's all designed to cause us to turn around, to repent, to come back in our hearts to him, whose love can only be felt when we're near him. And we certainly know that from a human relationship. We can't be intimate with somebody that we're not close to. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's active. He stands and he knocks. He does something about it. He tries to get our attention through circumstances that knock on our door. And he's knocking on a door that's closed, maybe because of our attitude, maybe because of sin. He's knocking on that door that's closed. If anyone hears my voice, what's the voice saying? I believe it's saying, come. Come near to me. Open the door. I want intimacy with you. And if you stop and think about it, there are so many, many things that compete for intimacy with our Savior. There are so many things that compete for intimacy within the family. The dead horse that we beat a million times, the cell phone, but there's more than that. Just sort of the activities of life, the speed of life, social media, sports. There's so many things that can get in the way. And they're not all bad things. But they get in the way like that fly is getting away of my face right now. They get in the way of our intimacy. But I'm just going to live with that fly. We're going to be one together. And so you think of all the things that get in the way. The things that get in the way of your time. Of your activities. I've heard it once. I've heard it a thousand times. I just don't have time to what? Go to church, to spend time with God on a daily basis, to whatever. So all this competition, all this flurry of activity, he's knocking. He's calling. Come near to me. Come near to me. It's going to be a challenge, because that fly is going to be killed. So Jesus endured the pain. Am I the only guy that didn't take a shower this morning? Jesus... Jesus endured the pain and separation from his father on the cross. And he paid the penalty for our sins, breaking down the barrier between us and God so we could be near him. He doesn't want the sum total of our nearness to be simply reading the Bible once a week or listening to Christian music in our car or or sitting in a worship service for an hour. Although those are all good things and it's good to include those things. But he wants a close, personal, life-changing, missional relationship. That's also what we've been learning through the book Saturate, the impact of having a life so intimate, so close to our Savior that it comes out in all of our relationships, and we look for opportunities to share with others in very natural ways, through our daily rhythms, through our daily contacts, through our neighbors. And obviously the book we're reading suggests a step even further, what the author calls missional communities, or a very intentional and regular and the mandate of being the church to others, using our gifts and talents to impact the world, world for Christ. So we'll have to wait and see what God does in us and through us to kind of see how that all plays out in terms of being missional, having missional communities. But depending on where you are in your spiritual journey, the thought of being intimate with Christ or close to God might be a foreign concept. I don't know. Maybe you're just trying to get through the day. Maybe you're just trying to take care of the kids, pay the bills, finish school, whatever whatever it is you're doing. 
Maybe today's the first time you've even thought of him knocking at your door through life's circumstances. So, glad you're here. It's good to kind of have you exposed to that kind of thing. Keep listening. Maybe chat with somebody else maybe you feel might be further along in the journey than you to help expose you to what I'm talking about. But some of the backstory with Joseph starts with his 11 brothers feeling envy toward him. And whenever we are filled with envy, feelings of jealousy and resentment, this can produce hatefulness. And that's a word to describe Joseph's brother's feelings toward him, hateful. And those feelings broke off communication with him. They were, they were estranged from him. We understand what that looks like, right? So the story, I'm just going to hit the highlights, right? He, he came out to them. They're out in the field. They're taking care of sheep. And, and they weren't fond of him, right? They had hateful feelings toward him. So they put him in a pit to kind of hold him kind of in jail. And then they sold him to some folks that were headed to Egypt. They ended up in prison. And then through a series of events, he ended up being on the throne. He was the number two guy in the land. And that's why I say Joseph's life, when you really look at it, is the most clear representation of Jesus in the Old Testament. But let's go back a few ver- chapters in Genesis. Look at the character of the man who says to his brothers, come near to me. Let's go to Genesis 41, 40. Pharaoh is speaking to Joseph. You shall be over my house, Pharaoh says to Joseph, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. This is the guy that was in the pit and got sold, right? Was in jail, and now here he is. Order themselves as you command. They'll do whatever you say. That's the position of the one speaking to his brothers now. He is the man. Then in verse 44, Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. See, the nation of Egypt at that time was beyond many others in all of its development, culturally, technologically, agriculturally, any way you could think of, a little bit like Bowling Green. Yet, No one could lift a hand or a foot without Joseph's permission. How great was the one who was saying, come near to me, and how unworthy were his brothers. Think of the greatness of the one who's saying to us, come near, and think of how unworthy we are. It's easy to see that parallel. And then in verse 55, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the, all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And those last words were identical to the words of Mary, who was speaking to Jesus at the wedding, you might remember. The mother of Jesus told them they were out of wine, and Jesus said, what do I have to do? My hour has not come yet. And she said to her servant, whatever he says to you, do it. See, just as Pharaoh told the people to totally submit to Joseph, Mary told the servant to totally submit to Jesus. God is telling us to totally submit to and listen to the Holy Spirit's leading today. We need to be near God, continually filled with the Spirit to know what he is saying, both for our life personally and as God wants us to influence the lives of others by being missional. Global connections, the pregnancy center, the areas that might be available to us. Not religion, relationship. 
Going back to Joseph, God caused a famine over the land. God can move heaven. He can move earth to accomplish his purposes in our life. He caused a famine. If there hadn't been a famine, you know where this is going. They wouldn't have been coming to Joseph. If the prodigal son had found a soup kitchen, he wouldn't have come back to his father. It's at those points of despair, those points of of desperation that we grow in our need for God. Who only knows the full extent of God's plan, for example, for all the natural disasters and certainly the war-related events we've seen just in the last three days. They seem terrible. They seem demonic. They seem evil, and they are. But what's up God? What is he doing? What are the churches in Paris right now having an opportunity to do that they couldn't have before? I don't know. I don't know. But the famine in the land drove them to Joseph. What's going on now? Where is God driving us? God knew what it took. Then God knows what it takes now to bring us near to himself. In the verse we read in Revelation, whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, makes more sense. It's that rebuking, it's that discipline that represents his love for us. See, God loved the children of Israel. He did not like to see them hungry, just as we as parents don't like to see our children hungry. Yet it was God's way of bringing them to Joseph. God created a void. And in that void, they realized their need. God can create voids in our lives that make us realize that we need him. And it's in those voids that we sometimes fill it with other stuff. We fill it with busyness. We fill it with people. We fill it with false love. We fill it with false enjoyment. And God has created that void as a way of bringing us into an intimate connection with him. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And again, there's a lot of competition for that satisfaction. Joseph's brother knew nothing of the fact that this famine meant more for them than simply not having crops, not having food, and having to go to Egypt to get it. At the time, they didn't see God's hand in it. It takes wisdom to really discern what's God saying through our circumstances. What is God saying? Once we process the emotion of whatever's going on, what is God saying? So they're brought to Egypt, and in Genesis 42, 7, it says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Joseph knew these were the guys that threw him in the pit. How could he forget that? That had been even more than 20 years, but that didn't change it. He knew those guys. But it says he disguised himself to them and spoke to them roughly. I don't know what the disguise looked like. You can make that up in your own mind. But he didn't reveal himself to them. He disguised himself and actually spoke roughly to them. That seems so kind of cruel. But this is the one who later says, come near me. But before they could truly respond to that request, before they had ears to hear, they must have rough speaking. Joseph did not love them less But with the wisdom God had given him, this was necessary. 
It was love that spoke rough to them and love that said, come near me. See, God tells us to follow him, and we do, thinking everything is going to go great, and then the bottom drops out, and we get spoken roughly to by God. He knows just how much to give us to cause us to, to turn around, to look, to open the door, to listen to his voice, and make us realize we need more knowledge of him, we need more intimacy with him, So what did this rough speaking produce in Joseph's brothers in verse 21? They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Remember, they they didn't recognize him, so they weren't feeling guilty because they were in his presence. They didn't know that. And they talked like it was yesterday, but it had been, like I said, plus 20, 20 plus years ago. But they realized what they had done, and they realized the inappropriateness of what they had done. And quite possibly the guilt had been nagging them to a greater or lesser degree for a long time. We are guilty concerning our brother. See, the hand of God makes us realize when our relationship with him what our relationship has been with him has been like practically. He makes us realize what we've been lacking, where we may have failed, where we are guilty. There's so many applications for that, isn't there? If we think of God watching us lovingly with a holy perspective, how do we think he feels when we're not walking in holiness or in righteousness? That presuppose, presuppose, pre can't find that word. That makes the assumption that we have it as our goal to be holy. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Is it your goal to live righteously? Is it your goal for holy living? When I was a kid, my dad was a pastor. I grew up in the church, and so I always was a Christ follower, but didn't really have a passion for holy living. I would do sort of enough to sort of stay over the line but I really had no passion for holiness. And as I get older, and I said, I pursue holiness, Right? It almost seems like the more I know about holiness, the farther away it is. I see a greater gap between me and holiness. And it's my pursuit of that, my ongoing pursuit of that, that keeps me attempting to listen to the voice of God. So we read that Joseph's brothers felt guilty. What do we do when we feel guilty in God's presence? Maybe we take a step back. Maybe we avoid God's presence. Maybe we fill our life with the other things I was talking about before. We need to acknowledge these feelings, push through them to be comfortable in his presence. Understanding that he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. So Joseph, to make sure his brother's hearts were in the right place, requires that one of his brothers stay with him, Simeon, and the rest go back home. And they do that, but as time passes, they're still in the midst of the famine. This void is still present. They still have needs, so they have to go back to Joseph to get food. The journey's not over yet. But at that time, when they come back again, the second time, Joseph requires that their younger brother, Benjamin, has to stay with Joseph when they return to Canaan. 
in chapter 44, verse 16. We have a passionate plea by Judah to Joseph for his younger brother. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we, what shall we speak? Or how can we, how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Joseph brought them to the state of conscience, to the realization of what they had done, so they would be able to respond to Joseph's heart all along. See, even though they had treated Joseph very poorly, Joseph loved them. That obviously sounds familiar to us. If you know Christ as your Savior, we have treated him poorly, yet he loved us while we were still sinners. Joseph was able to separate the individual from the incident. But what they had done required Joseph to first speak to them roughly. But back to Judah, who's pouring out his heart to Joseph in verse 30 and 31. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, referring to his father, Jacob, and the boy is not with us, then as the life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will, he will die, referring to Jacob. He'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, in sorrows to Sheol or to the grave. See, now Judah is concerned that when his brother Benjamin comes up missing, this will kill his father. See, 20 years earlier, he was not so concerned about lying to his father about Joseph coming up missing. You remember the story when they brought Joseph's bloody technicolor dream coat back to their dad and led him, led him to believe that Joseph was killed. And at that time, we read that their father Jacob said, I will go down to the grave in sorrow. See, then they were willing to let their father die in sorrow. Now, they had been so convicted of their sin, they were in a very different place about their father. They were broken. They were filled with empathy and caring as a result of the rough speaking. And then we finally come to chapter 45, and Joseph senses that the work has been done. They've come to the realization of the magnitude of their sin and guilt. There's no more hostility or envy towards Joseph. So in chapter 5, verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from here. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. We all know what it's like to weep inside. And, and if the feeling's that strong enough, we let the tears flow. We weep out loud. That's exactly what Joseph did. His love for his brothers was amazingly strong. He cried so loud that neighbors heard it, it says in the next verse. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. He wanted them to know the relationship. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They were terrified. They were shocked. They were anxious. They were broken. All kinds of emotions going on with those guys. Mission accomplished for Joseph. And then the verse we started this with at the beginning was, Come near to me. Come closer. No longer the rough language. Come near to me. I don't want anything between us right now. All their hurtful, hate-filled feelings 
were gone. Sin was acknowledged. But something kept them from coming closer to him. From entering into this true love relationship. Fear. Fear will prevent us from coming to the Lord just as we are, as Billy Graham used to say in his crusades. Perfect love casts out fear, we read in 1 John. But finally they obey and they come near to Joseph. They now saw Joseph's heart towards them. And all the stages had taken them through, and I only touched on a few of them. They'd taken away all that would prevent them from coming to him. So what stages is God taking you through right now? Are the stages taking away the part of you that would prevent you from coming to him? I've used this metaphor before and I sort of think and live in metaphorical phrase. And I think in reality too sometimes. But the metaphor that I'm thinking about is a pencil and a pencil sharpener. The pencil is only good as a pencil once it has been ground down. And all the wood around it gets ground away and the lead is revealed. And then the pencil has value according to its creator. Now that lead doesn't last very long. There needs to be more grinding and more sharpening and more rough speaking for the lead to come out again. For the creator's purpose of the pencil to be used effectively. Now the metaphor falls down at some point, as all metaphors do, because at some point the pencil is too short, we throw it away. God doesn't throw us away. He just patiently grinds us down. (laughs) Amen to that. I'm a nub of a pencil in my life. God thinks there's plenty of room left to stick me back in the sharpener. Notice in verse 5, Joseph, wisely anticipating their own emotional journey, says to them, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Can you imagine how they felt? Guilty to the max. And Joseph says, you know what? Don't feel that way. Just come here. There's a popular, well-meaning teaching today in the church, maybe more so in the church, that says we need to forgive ourselves. There is no scripture for that. Joseph did not tell them to process their emotion, forgive themselves, and then come. He didn't say that. He poured out his heart and said, come just as you are. I'm the one doing the forgiving. Christ is saying the same thing. My cross covered all your sin. The lying, the stealing, the abortion, the divorce, the years of addiction, the adultery, the choices you've made, fill in the blank sin. Let me forgive you. There's no need for a second act of forgiveness. Simply come near to me. Hold my outstretched hand is what God is saying. Verse 11, Joseph tells them to stay in Egypt with them and says, I'm going to provide for you. God is saying the same thing to us. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to hear and feel my support as a result of the pain that you've been through. 
there will be purpose in that pain. When we go through the valley, when we fall over the edge of the cliff, he's going to provide for us. We don't have to worry about what we are giving up. We only need to trust that God will provide way more than we can ask or imagine. I was thinking of a little girl in my office who was playing in the overflow area while her brother was in seeing me. She was having a lovely time until mom said, it's time to go. And then her whole world came crashing down because those little collection of toys that she was playing with at that very moment, was that was her world. And her world was then destroyed. And she was a meltdown girl. And mom was doing her best to say, come on, we can do more later. Nothing was working with this girl. Because in her mind, her whole world had just ended. Now clearly we as adults look back and smile, oh, it's so cute, we see what's going on. We're the same way. Only you and God know what he's been taking you through. Maybe you've been so busy or maybe you've been so preoccupied that you haven't taken the time to come near to him, to hear from him. Remember Stephen in the Bible when he was being stoned in Acts 7? Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. In his darkest moments, he remembered to have the Spirit of Christ towards the one stoning him. He said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. I'm not Stephen. I'm not that godly. I'm not that holy yet. We cannot expect to have the right spirit towards those who we are stone, who, towards those of us who are stoning us, if we are not near to God, looking up into His face, spending time with Him on a daily basis, praying on a daily basis. Come near to me. Be filled, continually filled with His Spirit. He is saying to you and to I, "Come near to me, and I'm going to provide for you." And then in verse 15, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked to him. See, the open signs of affection were proof that Joseph had forgiven them. Then they could talk to him. After the terrible treatment he had done to them, he freely forgave them, and then he restored their fellowship back. Are you fully convinced that Jesus died for all of your sins, past, present, and future? And does that mean forgiveness for you? And is there any reason that you cannot come near him? I'm going to leave you with some verses that are not going to be on their overhead, so just listen to these verses. There are a variety of verses from John 15, and maybe you know some of these verses. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So I'll leave you with this note. Come near to him. Abide in his love. Find that joy. Find that peace. And see how God will use you to impact others 
as you live a missional life? What is God doing through you that he wants you to do outside of you? How is God touching you? So I want to invite the band back up here. And we're going to give you a chance this morning, while they're playing, to really have some symbolic remembrances of what God has done for you. There's the cup. There's the bread. Over these next several worship songs, if you understand you're a sinner, if you understand that Jesus paid the price for you on the cross for your sins, then come remember that event. Take the bread, dip it in the cup. Think of the blood, think of the body that was spent for you, for your freedom, for your salvation. That was an act that happened long ago, and it's so easy to forget it, which is why we continue to remember it. And then how am I manifesting my life in Christ? You can do that over the next several songs. Let's stand as we worship together.